Well, again, glad to see all of you today. You know, some of you who've been with us for quite some time, that we have been looking, or we looked for many months at the book of Daniel, kind of traced our way through the book of Daniel. 24 messages in the book of Daniel. We spent several months looking at it. And since we finished that just a few weeks ago, uh, we have been taking a, a short mini-series look at the rapture, at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we believe is the next thing on God's prophetic calendar. I have said to you repeatedly uh, over the years, and certainly again just in our recent preaching, that we are not setting dates for the Lord's return. Uh, we, are, we know that Jesus himself said that, that there is no one who knows the day or the hour that Jesus Christ is going to return. We can see the times and the seasons, but we do not know the day and the hour. So we're not trying to scare anyone, but we do certainly want our friends and our loved ones to wake up spiritually and to respond to God in biblical ways. We want them to understand the times as best we can and be aware of what is happening in our world so that we'll have an idea of what to expect in the coming months and years. And if, by God's grace, we live to see these final events unfold, then we will be grounded in the Scripture. And if we are destined in the plan of God to endure times of hardship and persecution prior to the rapture, uh, then we will at least have enough of a grip on Bible truth uh, that we will be able to stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we want to understand what's happening. We want to know why it's happening. And, and so we have taken the last couple of weeks, and one more week today, next week, we'll look at some different topics. But one more thought today on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in our world today, by the way, we're going to be in First Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5. <coughs> Hopefully one day I'll get past this wheezy cough I've had for the last couple of weeks. In our, in our world today, there are three major views of world history. One is called the cyclical view, or the cycling view, which means that everything runs in cycles, and we just keep moving through the same cycles over and over and over and over, and over again. History repeats itself, is what people say. Nations and political movements and even individuals run through cycle after cycle after cycle. The Hindu belief in reincarnation, the cycle of birth and life and death and rebirth, is a, is a, is a prime approach to this, uh, to this uh, thought about history. Uh, many who are not Hindu will tell you still what goes up must come down. Everything goes round and round. Things are bad, but then they get better, as in politics and other economic issues. They say, uh, you know, things just keep going around and cycling around, and, and they just go around in circles again and again. Well, you know, there are some cycles in the natural world. We have day and night. We have seasons. We have some cycles in the natural world because God made it that way. But biblically, the reason history tends to repeat itself is because people keep making the same mistakes over and over again. Our sinful nature has us in bondage, so we keep doing the same dumb things over and over again, nationally and as individuals. So, so the cycles that we often see in government and in the world, it, it's not due to some impersonal force in the universe that just kind of keeps the merry-go-round spinning. 
It's due to the sin nature of human beings and our general inability to see the consequences of our foolishness. So we keep making the same foolish mistakes again and again. There's a, there's a, a, a second view of history called atheistic naturalism, which means that there's no God, there's only the natural world. History doesn't repeat itself. It just wanders around aimlessly, going nowhere. Modern evolution sees history from this perspective, that man is the result of, of purposeless natural processes, just a chance configuration of molecules. Everything we see just happens, some people say. You know, que sera, que sera, whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see, que sera, sera. Meaning it just is what it is, and whatever happens, happens. And living in our culture, we're all affected in some way by these philosophies. Even though we may not have swallowed the entire humanistic pill, we are still affected and possibly some ways infected by those perspectives. But you know, the, the Bible view of history, God's view of history, is a total contrast to these humanistic views. God is there. God created God has spoken. God cares. God has a purpose. God has a reason. God judges. God rewards. History is not just a meaningless cycle of events in which things just happen. History is the outworking of God's plan for His creation. He spoke this world into existence for a reason. And this world in its history does have a planned end. And that's what we're examining in, uh, in this study of the end times, these thoughts on the rapture that we're looking at. Two weeks ago, as we began to look at this issue of the rapture, you remember when, when Jesus Christ returns to this earth to take his followers to be with him? That's what we call the rapture. <clears throat> and I shared with you, I think maybe last week or the week before, there are at least, at least five different beliefs among Bible-believing people about the rapture, about the timing of the rapture. Some people think the rapture comes at the end of the seven-year tribulation. We call them post-tribulation or post-trib. Others think the rapture is going to happen in the middle of the tribulation. Uh, they call them mid-tribulation. There's a variation to that called the pre-wrath rapture. And then there is a partial rapture theory. It says only, only people living for the Lord will be raptured. Everybody else will be left to go through the tribulation. Carnal Christians will be left to suffer in the trip. I call it kind of a thought on kind of a Protestant purgatory. You know, the, the godly people get taken in the rapture, the other people get left behind. Uh, and by the way, which you know as we've talked about those things, none of that's not in the scripture anywhere. Finally, there is what we call the pre-tribulation rapture, that Jesus will remove his true disciples from this earth before the seven-year tribulation begins. And although your position on the timing of the rapture is not an eternal destiny issue, it's not a salvation issue, it doesn't determine if you go to heaven or not, but it does affect the way that you view lots of passages of Scripture. You know, of course, a lot of you guys have been around here for many, many years, you know that I'm pre-tribulational. Uh, it is a complex topic, we're just examining some scripture to build our understanding of the promised return of the Lord Jesus. And we've seen in the last several weeks that the rapture is a fact. Jesus said he was coming back to get us. We have seen that he is coming in the clouds and we're going to see him. Those who have died in the Lord are going to be resurrected and their souls 
currently in heaven with the Lord will be reunited with their resurrection body. The bodies of those followers of Jesus who are alive at the rapture will be instantly changed into their new glorified bodies and will all be reunited to meet the Lord in the air and to be with Him for all of eternity. We saw that from John 14, 1 Corinthians 15, other passages that we've looked at in past weeks. Two weeks ago, we examined the central passage in the rapture in the New Testament here in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18. We saw on that glorious day there's going to be a return, there's going to be a resurrection and a rapture and a reunion and great rejoicing, and we're going to move into the first few verses of chapter 5 today. I want to give you just a little bit of background there. When Paul wrote this letter to the Thessalonians, of course the name of the town was Thessalonica, and so the people who lived there were called Thessalonians. And when Paul wrote this letter, those believers were all new, pretty new in Christ. If you were to read Acts 17, it would record the Apostle Paul's visit there to preach the gospel. It, it also indicates in Acts 17, many Jews, many Gentiles came to Christ. But there was great opposition to Paul's ministry, so he only stayed there for three or four weeks. So the Thessalonians did not have a lot of time with Paul before he was run out of town by those who opposed the gospel. But he did teach them about the return of Christ. Before we read here in, first, in chapter 4 and 5, look back at chapter 1. Let me show you a couple of passages that, that give us an idea that Paul actually had taught them about the return of the Lord. <clears throat> we mentioned these verses a couple of weeks ago, but we did not read them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 Begin to read here in verse 6. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believed. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves that declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and here's a great phrase, how you turned to God from idols to serve the true or the living and true God. And to wait, verse 10 says, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And so Paul says, you folks here in this place, I came, I preached to you, you responded it, you, you, you turned from idols to serve the living and true God, and, and to wait for Jesus Christ to come back from heaven. He said, even this Lord Jesus, who's going to deliver us from the wrath to come. And notice he said, they, verse 6, they received the word in much affliction. In other words, it wasn't easy for them to just sort of waltz into the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a lot of opposition. There was a lot of people who were harassing them and ridiculing them and mocking them and persecuting them in other ways. Look at chapter 3. Just turn a page over and look at chapter 3. Paul talks about it again when he says in verse 3 that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened, and you know. So Paul says, hey, we know there's going to be afflictions. 
You stand for Jesus Christ. You stand for the Word of God. You stand for the truth of the Gospel. And people are going to call you names. They're going to ridicule you. Who knows what else they might do? He said, he said, and God has appointed us to, in some ways, in some cases, to suffer something for our testimony for Christ. So he tells the Thessalonians, you know that what's happening to you and what has happened is only to be expected. Now, if you say everybody's all going to heaven and everybody's going just, I mean, all all roads lead to heaven and everything's okay, then nobody will hassle you. But you say Jesus Christ is the only way. You quote John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God the Father except through me. And you tell people they have to humble their heart before the Lord and ask for forgiveness of sin from Jesus Christ himself, and he's the only way to heaven. You start talking like that, people say, what in the world is wrong with you? And out come the barbs and up come the walls, and, and there's, there's going to be some harassment from most folks until they also see that same light. But apparently in the lives of the Thessalonians, the persecution had gotten so severe that some of the Thessalonians were afraid that they had missed the rapture and the the tribulation had already started. So Paul writes 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, he writes these two letters to the church to help them understand about the return of the Lord Jesus. They knew Jesus was coming back. They knew they might be persecuted for Jesus' sake. But without the completed New Testament, which they didn't have yet for another 20 years or so, and of course the book of Revelation wasn't written for 35 or 40 years later, without the completed New Testament, they were confused about what was happening. And obviously they could not remember the details of what Paul had taught them during his short stay in Thessalonica. And I know we read this a couple of weeks ago, but I want you to to look at chapter 4 and verse 13. And I want to read beginning there about the coming of Christ and then go right into chapter 5 up through verse 11. <clears throat> and then we'll kind of take that passage apart. First Thessalonians 4 and verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, meaning followers of Jesus who have died. That's the term they use. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Let us therefore not sleep as others do, but let us watch. He means being spiritually asleep. But let us watch and be sober. 
For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. We want to focus our thoughts on chapter 5, those 11 verses. You see the word, the day of the Lord, that Paul talks about in verse 2. The day of the Lord is an important biblical term. It occurs 19 times in the Old Testament and four times in the New Testament. And if you were to read all of those texts where day of the Lord appears, you would see that it is describing the time when God judges the unbelieving world. It's sometimes called the day of doom or the day of vengeance. Now, the day of the Lord is always associated with the wrath of God in judgment. Sometimes it refers to the eternal judgment of the lake of fire. Other times it refers to an earthly judgment on nations or individuals who have rejected God, such as what's going to occur during the great tribulation, as we call it. Paul here is exhorting the Thessalonians to not become so obsessed with looking for the timing of the tribulation, the day of the Lord, that they forget to live for God in the here and now. We should never say, you know, the Lord's probably going to come back in a, in a year, so why bother doing such and such? Why bother memorizing that verse? Why bother trying to get that extra education? Why bother trying to build this extra thing? Why bother trying to get a different car? Why bother trying to do anything? The Lord's going to come back in six months. You know, over the last couple hundred years, there have been several times people have done that sort of thing. They sell everything they own and they go sit on a hilltop and wait for the rapture to come. Obviously, it didn't come. Because the Bible says, you don't know when it's coming. <laughs> so, 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 don't, so, so don't just kind of quit living, especially if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Don't just quit living and sit around waiting for the rapture. Keep moving forward. Keep, keep, keep developing. Keep growing. Keep serving. Keep witnessing. Because when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, it's going to be a surprise to lots of folks. There are several challenges, several exhortations in these verses that apply to believers and unbelievers. The first one is this. The day of the Lord is a fact. Paul just says it's a fact. He said to verse 2, you know, you know perfectly the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. He said, I don't have to explain to you that this, this isn't some pie in the sky, scary movie novel or something, whatever. No, the day of the Lord is a real thing and it is going to happen. It is a fact. Secondly, he says it's going to come like a thief in the night. You know, the unbelieving world is not going to expect it. It's going to be a calamity. No thief in his right mind announces his intentions. You don't call up your, your, your victim if you're a thief and say, Hey, I'm going to come over to your house about 3 o'clock this morning and break into your garage and steal a bunch of stuff. No thief does that. He sneaks in when you're not expecting it. And you walk out the next morning and a bunch of stuff's gone. He said the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. It's going to be, it's going to be sudden destruction, he says in verse 3. It's going to surprise everybody. When people are saying peace and safety, when the whole world's crying out for peace and safety, the day of the Lord is going to appear, and when it starts, the unbelieving world will be in shock. 
We know, of course, from past studies in Daniel and other things we've looked at, <coughs> that one day the Antichrist is going to step up to solve the world's problems. And globalization, one, one government is going, to, is going to solve the problems of the world, so they say. They're going to end war. They're going to, you know, the Antichrist is going to sign a treaty with Israel that's going to solve all the Middle East conflicts. And, and all the things that are going on today to try to save the planet. They're going to finally reach a point, maybe in the not too distant future, where they're going to say, Woohoo! We have saved the planet! We're all in peace and safety now! And the Apostle Paul says, That's right when the day of the Lord is going to come. When everybody's saying, Oh, peace and safety, peace and safety. We all live in peace. We've abolished war. We've fixed all the problems of the world. We've saved the planet for the next 5,000 years. He says right at that time, that's when the day of the Lord is going to come and shock the daylights out of everybody. It's a fact. It's going to come like a thief of the night. He also says in, in verse 4, verse 3, he says that there, there will be no escape. Just like labor pains. And I'm, and I'm not speaking from experience, of course. But any person who, uh, any, any lady who has born, uh, born a child understands labor pains. <clears throat> you may dread the labor experience, even if you've experienced it before. You may dread the labor experience. But when those first pains begin to come, you know it's time. And there's no turning back. That's what Paul says. It's going to be no escape. Just like a lady who goes into labor. She can't say, I think I'd like to wait another week or two. Doesn't work that way. The labor pains start, bang, it's coming. Paul says that's what the day of the Lord is going to be like. It's going to start. People can't say, wait Lord, wait, can you give me just a little more time? He says, no. The day of the Lord is going to come. The judgment of God is going to come. It'll be like a thief in the night. It's going to surprise everybody and there is no escape. But I want you to notice something very, very interesting. Here in verse 3 it says, For when they say, peace and safety, sudden destruction comes on them, as the labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But then in verse 4, all the way to verse 11, he changes the pronouns. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, though that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night and of the day. And so suddenly in verse 3, all the, the, all the they and the thems change to you and we and us in verse 4 and in verse 11, all the way up to verse 11. And I believe Paul is reminding the Thessalonians and us that we who know the Lord are not going to experience the day of the Lord. It is a time of judgment on the unbelieving world. They and them, not we and us. He contrasts then day people and night people. The day people being those who know the Lord and understand the scripture. The night people being those who don't. And there are, there are three distinct differences he, he, he gives us in these verses between day people and night people. The first one is this, that we have a different perspective. If we are people of the day, we have a different perspective. 
We are not in darkness, Paul says. We see the day of the Lord approaching. We are not shocked when we see the last days winding down. When we see globalism beginning to be on the rise and we, and we see all these various technologies that, that will have to be in place in order for the entire world to be under one big government umbrella, it doesn't scare the daylights out of us, or it shouldn't. Because we just see those things in the book of Revelation, and we know we're just one day closer to the coming of Jesus. So he said, we have a whole different perspective. We know that the world is being prepared for the judgment of God. And as the world accepts alternative forms of marriage and rejects the traditional God-ordained view, and when all of these different sexual variations of things coming up today that we see are all around us, we are not rattled and say, oh, what's this world coming to? We know what this world is coming to. It's being primed for the judgment of God in the tribulation. I heard somebody who is an unbeliever was complaining about people take, trying to take a biblical stand on, on sexuality and those things. And, and this, this person said, oh, come on, people, it's the 21st century. Get over it. And I thought, well, it doesn't really matter what year it is, does it? Truth is timeless. And the Apostle Paul says, we, we are people of the day. We should have a different perspective on what's going on in our world because we see where it's all headed. Secondly, Paul says we should have a different behavior. And Paul uses two behaviors, sleeping versus being alert and drunk versus sober. He says people who sleep or get drunk generally do so at night. But the parallel is very interesting because when he talks about the person being asleep, he means they're kind of in, indifferent, like they're not really paying attention to their, to their surroundings. If a person sound asleep, I remember my, dad had, uh, my dad's left ear, he lost most of the hearing in it. His right ear was still fairly good for a number of years there just before he passed away. But if he was taking a nap... If he was laying on his right side with his head on, with his head, right, with the right ear in the pillow, you could walk into the room and talk and laugh and joke and turn on the TV and the radio. He never knew anything's going on. His left ear was deaf. And the Apostle Paul says, you know, there, there's a lot of people in this world who have turned a deaf ear to what is going on. They are totally indifferent to their surroundings. And then you have the person, the image of the person getting drunk. He's, well, most of the time when people get drunk, they do it on purpose. They planned it to get drunk. They throw care to the wind. They get soused because they want to. So the people of the night see the world becoming un coming unraveled. They see problems everywhere. But either they are not paying attention like the person asleep, or they willfully reject what's happening like the person who chooses to get drunk because they don't want to deal with life. And people say, well, it's not God, it's not a spiritual problem, it's not judgment, I'm just, I'm just going to try to ignore it all. But Paul says, we here are day people. We should be spiritually awake, we should be spiritually alert. We should put on the armor of God, and notice what it says there in verse 8. 
We who are of the day should be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now that may sound familiar to some of you. Remember the, the armor of God in chapter 6 of, of, of Ephesians. The breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. He uses a similar thought there. The breastplate of faith and love and, the, and, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. You see another famous trio there, faith, hope, and love. Curse for you Bible students, you remember that pops up in 1 Corinthians 13. And they, the, those are core values of the follower of Jesus, faith, hope, and love. Faith, meaning believing God, not believing in God, but believing God enough to do something about it. Believing what God says and believing it enough that you do something about it, that's faith. Love, that self-sacrificing commitment that the Lord Jesus Christ showed to us. And hope, that having confident trust in God. Faith, hope, and love are core values of followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul says that should be our life. Not to be indifferent. Not to be ignoring what's going on. But, but to be putting on uh, the, the armor of God and living in faith and hope and love. People of the day, he says, should have a different behavior. Not only should they have a different perspective, they should have a different behavior. Because we trust God's character, and we trust God's promises, and we trust God's power, and we trust God's plan, and, 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 and we trust God's purposes. And we live like that. We live like we're trusting those things. Because we are people of the day, and we have a different behavior. And then he also says, not only should you have a different perspective and a different behavior, we have a different destiny. Very plain statement there I love in verse 9. God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. A very plain statement, but yet debated by many. We know that Paul is certainly referring to our eternal salvation, because he says so, whether you wake or whether you sleep, whether you're living or whether you've passed away, that we would live together with him. So we know not being appointed to wrath it is connected to our eternal salvation. But the greater context here, he's talking about the day of the Lord, the time of God's judgment. That's what the whole passage is about. That's another reason why we believe in the pre-tribulation rapture. We are not appointed to obtain wrath. We are not appointed by God to be here on this earth when He begins to pour out His wrath on this planet. And why should we be? Romans 8, chapter 1 says, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So Paul says, we have a different destiny. The day of the Lord hasn't started because you're still here, he says to the Thessalonians. God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So then his summary statement there in verse 11. Therefore, because of this, therefore, he says, comfort one another. The word comfort means to come alongside to help. It means to encourage, to lift up. He said comfort one another and edify one another. It means to build up. He says, he said, just as you're doing it, keep doing it. He says, therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing it. Paul says, you know enough about the times and the seasons to see what's coming. The day of the Lord is coming. And for unbelievers, there will be no, there'll be no escape. 
But he said, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're day people. You're not night people. So serve each other and minister to each other and help each other and build each other up. Be active in the Lord because he did not appoint you to endure his wrath that's poured out on their service during the Great Tribulation. Live like day people. Have a different perspective. Have a different behavior. Have a different destiny. You know, Carol was reading a, an interesting article in a magazine a number of years ago. And it was from a, a German equestrian. The, you know, the horse riding things where they do all those fascinating things. As a, it's a, kind of a little horse training article from this German uh, equestrian federation. And they developed one little word that they were kind of working toward what they wanted to achieve as the, as the rider was training the horse to do all these various things. <clears throat> I'm not a good German speaker, but it looks to me like Losgelassenheit. And I looked up the word, and I was looking at the word, and what it means, it means, the word literally means to, to let go. And what, and what, they, uh, what they're using that word for is, is to characterize, it said we want to characterize equestrian Losgelassenheit as a type of behavior, he says, in which the horse yields completely to the rider's direction and applies all of his strength and all of his muscles toward the energetic execution of the rider's demands, yet without feeling restricted. So Las Galassenheit describes the motion of a horse when it so to totally trusts its rider that its movements are in complete harmony with the rider's directions, yet it's more than just submission. The horse doesn't have the sense that it's being beaten into submission. The horse willingly does what the rider wants it to do and applies its energy and its strength to the will of the rider and enjoys the experience. If you ever watched Olympic equestrian stuff, it is kind of a beautiful thing to look at. Pretty incredible what they can teach those horses to do. And just that, that motion of being in sync and the horse kind of letting go, in a sense, of its own will and just applying all of its energy to exactly what the rider wants it to do. And as she was reading that to me a, a number of years ago, I thought, you know, that, that is a beautiful illustration of our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the rider. Do we trust him enough to do what he wants us to do and to do it joyfully? Do we apply our energy toward the will of God? Have we yielded completely to his desires for us? When God looks at us and he is, he is guiding us and helping us and directing us to see, think of that word, that German word, Laskalasenheit, they're, they're in submission to me, but they're not feeling like I beat them into submission. They're just doing the will of God and doing it happily. That's what our relationship should be, and that's what the Apostle Paul's driving at here. He says, you know the day of the Lord's coming. You know that unbelievers will not escape it. You know God has not appointed us to obtain wrath, so do you have a different perspective? Do you, do you have a different, I mean, you know you have a different destiny, so does that change your perspective? Does that change your behavior? 
You see, the doctrine of the rapture is, is intended to be inspirational and motivational. And when we understand what it's all about and we understand the Lord Jesus Christ coming and coming for us, we should be inspired and motivated to love God and serve God and, and be faithful and committed to the Lord Jesus. Will we be embarrassed when Jesus comes? What will he find us doing? How will he find us living? You know, the rapture could happen any time. But God has not appointed us to obtain wrath. Therefore, he says, comfort one another, edify one another, just as you have been doing. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the promise of your return. You said, in my Father's house are many mansions, many dwelling places. And he said, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Lord, what a glorious promise for us to look, as Paul told the Thessalonians, to wait for our deliverance from heaven. When the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, who died and rose again on our behalf, when He comes to take us home to be with Him. Lord, may we be submissive to Your will. May we be submissive to Your direction. May we not buck and fight and resist. Help us, Lord, to submit to You and have the right perspective and have the right behaviors. Because we know we have a wonderful destiny. Not because of our goodness, but because of Jesus Christ. So may we, Lord, spend whatever time left you give us on this earth, may we spend it serving you and obeying you, loving our families, loving God, being obedient to him. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.